Thank you for tuning into this edition of Lit These Days, presented by the Mark Literary Review. I'm your host, Jessica Purgett. In this podcast, I talk to Chuck Agello, author of the short story collection, The Inexplicable Gray Space We Call Love. Chuck talks a bit about his writing process and how he got published. He also reads my favorite story of his collection, Cool City. I hope you enjoy. So my first question for you was The Inexplicable Gray Space We Call Love is your collection of short stories, and some of them you published in a variety of literary magazines before publishing the whole book. And I was just wondering, how did you choose which of your stories to put in the book, and how did you choose the order of the pieces? Uh, Sure. Well, I first started thinking about it as potentially a collection after I'd published about 30 stories. I think at that point I thought, you know, I probably have enough to start thinking about putting together a book. And I just picked the ones that I thought were best. And I started sending it out. And I got some feedback that people liked the stories, but did not think it worked well as a collection. So it took a while for that to sink in. At first, it didn't make sense to me. But as I thought about it, and as I began to read other collections as collections, rather than just uh, individual stories within a book, I began to see that you do need that thematic link to make it work. So once I picked up on that, I always knew I wanted to go with the title, The Inexplicable Gray Space We Call Love, which is a line from one of the stories in the book, Cool City. So once I I made that connection, uh, I started looking for stories that all reflected some aspect of, of love. It wasn't always romantic love, but I think every story that made the the book kind of fits into that gray space and once that was set then it became pretty clear which stories fit and which ones didn't so did you when you were choosing the stories to put in and you were kind of redoing the order of things did you write any new pieces to go in there that would fit the theme a little bit better i didn't write the new pieces specifically for that purpose but there were some new stories that i that I wrote that fit in well. So whether that was subconscious or not, I'm not sure. But yes, there were some new things that kind of slotted in and pushed out some of the older stories because they were a better fit. Can you talk a little bit about the process of getting published? Like, what did that look like for you? Sure. Well, I actually was putting most of my efforts towards uh, publication of a novel, which has also been published. That is uh, The Revolving Heart. But I was also had this book and, and was sitting it, sending it out mostly to small presses. And there was a number that um, I still hadn't heard back. If anybody has had the experience of submitting a manuscript, you should uh, you know that it's a lengthy process. You kind of imagine when you hit submit or when you hit send on an email that somebody's going to get it, read it right away. That doesn't happen. It's really months before you hear back. Uh, So I did hear back from Edward Paris of Duck Lake Books that he was interested in the manuscript, and we decided to move forward with it. I had actually interviewed uh, Michael Chin, who wrote a collection that was also published uh, by Duck Lake Books, and I liked his book, and that's really how I found the press and thought, you know what? My work has some similarities with his, and, and perhaps you know they'd be open to what I'm trying to do as well. And, and that's how it happened. And you mentioned that you also wrote a novel titled The Revolving Heart. What do you think is more difficult, writing short stories or novels? They're both difficult. I, I think at 
this point, short stories are harder for me because I've, I'm working on a, a new novel now that, that they'll actually be published towards the end of the year. But in spending so much time writing novels, you move away from the concision and the brevity that's required for a good short story. Over the past few years, I've tried to write some pieces of flash fiction and I'll be at 3,000 words, and it's just like I haven't even started yet. So getting that tight, well-connected, well-structured story, I think, is actually harder than writing a novel. A novel requires a certain amount of discipline because you're working on it for so long, and there's going to be ups and downs, and you have to be open to that. But you've got space to explore different things, whereas in a short story, you really want every piece to fit perfectly, and that can be hard. Uh, I might have answered this question differently five years ago, but I think now short stories are actually more difficult. You are having another book published towards the end of this year. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, It's a novel. It's called Exit 23. It's about uh, a struggling independent filmmaker and his estranged father, who's a kind of a has-been actor. And it's set in the late 1990s, and it reflects on issues of animal rights uh, and the animal liberation movement. Uh, So it involves a a stolen capuchin monkey uh, and the efforts to rescue him. And do you have a release date for that yet or not quite yet? Tentatively, November 24th. So you're a contributing editor to Seize Cows. Can you talk a bit about how being an editor helped your own writing? The way that it's helped is by reading a lot of submissions. And I'm actually not as active uh, with Seize Cows as I used to be, but I still do read submissions. And this goes back to what I mentioned about it being hard to write short stories. Uh, I certainly learned a lot about the importance of the first page because when I'd be reading a submission, I almost always knew by the end of the first page whether something was going to be accepted or not. Uh, You need to capture the reader's attention in some way. It doesn't always have to be story. Sometimes it can be language. It could be a character. It could be a setting. But if at the end of the first page with a short story, if you don't have the reader's attention, you're almost never going to get it back. The other thing that I've I've learned is that you need to have something happen within a story. We get a lot of submissions that are really impressive uh, at the level of the sentence, some really good writing, but nothing happens. Uh, It's just kind of like a snapshot of a particular moment, but there's no character, there's no story movement, and even though often I want to say yes to those stories, almost always we end up declining them for the simple reason that nothing happens. It's kind of basic, but a story needs a beginning, a middle, and an end, and there needs to be movement within that story. I don't know that the the classic epiphany uh, is required anymore, but there does need to be some form of movement. Yeah, I would agree with that. For some of the stories that I'll get for the Mark Literary Review, they're really well written, but like you said, nothing happened. So I I hate to reject those pieces, but, you know, you kind of have to at that point. Uh, But kind of going off of that, um, as writers, we often get a lot of rejections. And did you ever reach a point where you wanted to quit writing and what got you through that? Uh, You know, I probably reach that point every day. Uh, But I keep going uh, because it's fun. It's fun. Uh, And and that doesn't mean it's not hard work. It's, It's not often frustrating. But 
sitting down and working on a story, working on a novel, you know, writing sentences, I actually enjoy it. And, you know, there are other things I could be doing with my time, but this seems to be the right thing to do. And there have been short periods of time where I haven't been working on things and I'll realize I'm, I'm cranky, maybe I'm short-tempered, and it's probably because I don't have that outlet. Uh, I've always been someone who has a, a strong imagination uh, and that imagination needs an outlet and this is an outlet that is um, that, that works, that satisfies me in some level. And there's also some external success. I mean, I have published some work and, and I have, I mean, I've, I'm sitting here talking with you and that certainly is some kind of external validation that what I'm doing, you know, has reached people and I certainly appreciate that. So it's a mix of the two, but yeah, yeah, I always wonder, you know, there's always that little voice in, in the back of your head that's kind of saying, you know, you suck or, you know, this story sucks. Uh, but you just keep going. Uh, and that voice is often wrong. Sometimes it's right and it is a bad piece, but it's often wrong. But I would encourage anybody who you know is, is discouraged by rejection to keep going if it's something that makes you feel good. Uh, if it's not, then maybe you should quit. Uh, but to seek that internal validation. Uh, Kurt Vonnegut, a writer who I admire quite a bit, has said something to the effect that art is what we do to make our soul grow. And I think if you approach it that way, then, you know, the rejection doesn't matter as much. And you kind of mentioned that Kurt Vonnegut was one of your favorite writers. Do you have any other favorite writers? Uh, I've always enjoyed uh, John Irving. The World According to Garp is probably the first piece of literary fiction that I read that really just captured me. And I thought, wow, this is really special. Uh, so certainly John Irving, uh, Tom Parada, I enjoy Richard Russo, T.C. Boyle. I've recently been reading Hiromi Kawakami, who is a Japanese novelist. Uh, she writes short stories as well, but I've mostly read her novels. And they're, they're really enchanting. They're strange. Uh, they're fun. They are often romantic, but I just really enjoy the way that she looks at the world. So she's someone who I've just started reading over the past uh, year or so who I really enjoy. I will definitely have to check those authors out. And you are actually going to read a story on this podcast. And can you tell us uh, a little bit about what it's about and what it's called? Sure. Well, the story is uh, called Cool City. Uh, it was published by One Story um, I think about five years ago. I'm not sure exactly on the timeline, but it has been a few years uh, now. It was a story that I began when I was um, in the MFA program at Queen's University in Charlotte. I think I wrote the first third of it and then just kind of let it sit. Uh, it was really about two characters meeting and the idea of love at first sight being something that you might force, as ridiculous as that sounded. So I didn't begin the story with any particular end in mind and some of the quirks of the narrator developed outside of the initial vision for the story uh, but that was the initial idea just the idea of kind of forced love and what that might bring um, and approaching it from a comic perspective cool city i was in the kitchen watching the weather channel when the girl from two floors down knocked on my door and asked if i wanted to fall in love Total mad crazy love, she said, you and me, what do you think? I had seen her a few times previously, hanging out on the front stoop, listening to her iPod through these giant coconut headphones. 
You could tell she was proud of her shins by the way she stretched her legs from the stoop to the sidewalk, her black skirt all bunched up at mid-thigh so you had no choice but to look. Sometimes she'd shout out random lyrics to whatever song she was listening to, singing in this high, off-key voice that reminded me of a bird that had once lived inside my air conditioner. Everything is free, she'd sing, shooting me a little head nod as I climbed around her on the stoop. Everything is me. Everything is free. Sha-na-na-na-bop-bop, sha-na-na-na-bop. I'd forget all about her and then wake up in the middle of the night with whatever song she'd been singing rattling in my head. Her musical choices seemed obscure, but maybe they were big hits that I had somehow missed. I started pacing the apartment trying to identify the song, but I never could. I'd wind up staring at the ceiling until the alarm clock rang and then drag myself to work and sleep at my desk. It was annoying, but except for the insomnia and the occasional daydream about her shins, we were strangers until that night she knocked on my door. Just a minute, please, I said, and went back into the kitchen while she waited in the open doorway. I muted the volume and stirred the pasta counterclockwise, lowering the heat on the electric stove. Every night for dinner, I had 27 pieces of linguine and a single beefsteak tomato. It was important that the pasta cook for 9 minutes and 24 seconds. I looked at the timer. I didn't have long to talk. Are you familiar with the fast love movement, she asked. If you're interested in falling in love, come down to my apartment and we'll talk. I have a good feeling about you. She had thick black hair cut close to her face, her bangs jagged and streaked pink, random strands lazing over her eyebrows. Her skirt, as always, was short. I tried not to stare at those shins. It's groundbreaking stuff, a real pathway to a happy life, she said. Dr. Ashokin, she's the founder, is an amazing visionary. If you come downstairs, I have a pamphlet you can read. You'll be impressed. I don't even know your name, I said. I feel we're on pretty shaky ground here. You're not a risk taker. No, but I'm reliable. A valuable trait. Risk taking is overrated. Hitler took risks. Am I supposed to be impressed? I've been living in Cool City for over a year and didn't have many friends. Only one, really. An old Czech woman who worked at the laundromat and liked to tell stories about getting drunk with Russian soldiers during the Prague Spring. It was rough out there in Cool City, lonely and aggressive. I didn't feel invisible exactly, but more like a silhouette, a shadow of someone else, but of whom I wasn't sure. She offered me a business card with a small, intricate font, a cartoon kangaroo with a fedora and a walking stick sketched at the bottom of the corner. Annabelle Southern Delaney, freelance illustrator and wilderness guide, licensed dental hygienist, New York, Oregon, Ohio, Maine, level one practitioner, fast love. With a name like this, you probably think I'm a Southern Belle, but I've never been south of the Mason-Dixon line, except for Disney World in Florida, but that doesn't count. And you are? People call me Dash. As in, I dashed to the supermarket or all my hopes were dashed? It depends on who you ask. She peeked over my shoulder, trying to see into my apartment. So, should we give it a shot? My instinct was to decline politely, close the door, and spend the night watching baseball while I finished the plate of linguine. At 9.15, I would eat two frozen waffles and a spoonful of peanut butter, complete 19 push-ups, and then go to bed. This was my routine, and it meant everything to me. But I was trying to change, trying to open myself to different possibilities. Twice a week, I went to therapy, and I needed something to report back to my counselor, Lydia, who always seemed bored and a little pissed off when I showed up for my sessions. Are you 2A or 2B? 2B. 
I checked my watch. The pasta had five minutes and 42 seconds to go, and I needed eight minutes to eat it. I'll be there at 7.05. Wonderful, she said. Another adventure in pursuit of the inexplicable gray space we call love. She smiled, and then she was gone. I turned up the TV and waited while the linguine rolled to a boil. A hurricane named Denise was scheduled to hit the city within 48 hours, and the Weather Channel anchors were giddy with panic. A montage flashed across the screen, boarded up windows and gridlocked traffic, a reporter grappling with her umbrella in the angry wind. The anchor kept mentioning the fury of Denise. It's going to be bad, I thought. Denise was my mother's name. When I was eight, we moved to Kansas for a few years while my father was stationed at Fort Riley. Tornado warnings were pretty frequent, and my mother took them personally. She kept the windows permanently boarded up with two-by-fours, and whenever a twister appeared within a 20-mile radius, she'd force my older brother Jerry and I into the basement while she paced upstairs with a fire extinguisher and a loaded shotgun. Jerry, who was eight years older than me, thought it was a blast. He hid old copies of Playboy in half-open bottles of rum behind the box with our artificial Christmas tree, and he'd wait out the storm getting buzzed and ogling this January. But I hated every minute in that moldy, cobwebbed basement. I would count my mother's steps as she patrolled the floor above us, hoping that she'd let us out once she reached a specific number. Perhaps 3,884, the total of our ages combined and then squared. There had to be a pattern, I thought, counting steps, counting breaths. In that moment in the basement, I started thinking that numbers might be important. After the past, I took the stairs down to 2B and knocked on Annabelle's door. I was hoping to see more of her shins, but she had changed into pajamas, nothing sexy, just striped flannel pants and a matching baggy top, the type of clothes you might wear before drinking half a bottle of cough syrup and climbing into bed. I followed her into the living room and sat on the couch, my eyes doing a quick scan of the room. On the wall, she had photographs of the Cascade Mountains and Crater Lake National Park, the location and date of each shot written at the bottom of the frame in flowing cursive. Most people would have noticed the candles she had everywhere, the books piled on the shelf, the sketch pads and pencils scattered over her coffee table. They might have seen the empty Chinese food containers next to the lamp and wondered if she was a slob. The purple yoga mat propped against the wall might have conjured images of downward dogs and sun salutations. The cruise ship photo of an older couple waving from the deck might have spurred a search for family resemblances. But for me, none of it registered. She could have had ten live chickens in a guillotine smack in the middle of the room, and I wouldn't have given a second glance. I was too busy searching for her fire extinguisher. Blame my mother and her tornado drills, but once I turned 13, I needed visual confirmation of a fire extinguisher in any office or apartment I entered before I could relax. I didn't want to ask, but really had no choice. Under the sink, she said, her eyes wary. Do you mind? We walked into the kitchen and peeked below the sink. Next to the garbage stood a small red canister, the instructions printed in white across the center of the tank. The UL rating wasn't great, but the charge level was high, and the little black nozzle pointed out like a thumbs-up sign, clean and ready to pop when needed. Thank you. Back in the living room, Annabelle opened a window and then joined me on the couch. She told me that her life's work was a series of graphic novels about an existential kangaroo solving crimes in 1920s Paris with Scott and Zelda Fitzgerald. 
She'd already finished the first one and was halfway through the sequel. Rent, of course, needed to be paid, so she still worked as a dental hygienist. But the graphic novels were her passion, and sometimes Alex Flynn, her kangaroo detective, felt more real to her than the people she passed on the street. The wind blew wild through the dark green curtains. We sat three feet, four inches apart, 101 centimeters in metric. I had a knack for distances. At any point, feel free to gaze into my eyes, she said. It helps expedite the bonding process. So I did. She had lovely brown eyes, dewy and intelligent, her eyelids long and full like the bristles on one of Picasso's paintbrushes. I told her this. Picasso? He was a misogynist, she said. A total creep from what I've read. But you can't blame his brushes, so thank you. There was a clipboard and a pen near her on the couch, and she grabbed both without breaking our stare. Do you know Rilke, she asked. Uh, is he the guy on the third floor with the shih tzu? No, Rilke, the poet, the German guy, although really he was Austrian. Isn't his middle name Maria? Yes, Rainer Maria Rilke. She reached over and touched my arm. I can't believe it. You know Rilke. This is very promising, Dash. The other 12 guys never heard of him. The other 12 guys? Well, you're not the first one I've tried this with, she said. But I have a good feeling about you. Lucky 13. She brushed the bangs away from her forehead. The fourth tenet in Dr. Ashokin's Fast Love Manifesto is the immediate disclosure of one's backstory. Do you mind? She'd already started before I could respond. Six months ago, I was living in Portland and completely miserable. I'd been with this guy for three years and had put everything into the relationship, but he was just, he was just wrong. She turned her hips and sank back into the couch. You know what I mean, right? I nodded as if I did, although most of what I knew about relationships came from books and movies. Over the years, I'd had a few girlfriends, but none had lasted more than 27 days and four hours. This guy, his heart was two-thirds cement. One-third was beautiful, but you can't overcome cement. My job wasn't much either. The, the pay was decent, but the doctor I worked for was a buck grabber. And Okay, some of the patients were sweethearts, but there's only so much gunk you can scrape out between molars before it starts to wither away your soul. She paused to check my reaction. People often accuse me of looking distracted, so I made sure to smile and look in her eyes. At therapy, Lydia always harped about making eye contact, but maybe it was too much. Annabelle blinked and looked toward her feet. Anyway, I started taking Lexapro and started drinking, too. Not crazy drinking, but enough that it bothered me. Then one Saturday, I went to Starbucks for some caffeine to chase away this really wicked hangover, and while I'm crashed out in one of those comfy chairs, I picked up the first book I see, The Selected Poetry of Rainer Maria Rilke. She touched my shoulder the way some people do when they're talking to you. I liked it. I couldn't remember the last time a woman had touched me, besides a handshake or a haircut. It was an old paperback with a black and red cover and an outline of a naked guy with an enormous ass hovering over the translator's name. A striking image, but kind of strange. I mean, the ass was bigger than Rilke's name. What was that all about? Anyway, half the pages were turned down, which I hate, and, and there were all these notes in the margins. I started uh, flipping the pages, but it was hard to concentrate. My head kept pounding, and I guess it was the effects of the hangover and maybe too much caffeine, but suddenly everything went fuzzy and I blacked out. You know that feeling right before you go down, like all the light in the world is getting sucked into this tiny black hole? It was scary stuff. They probably thought I was a heroin addict. I blacked out once or twice myself, I admitted. Well, she said, I was out for maybe 10 minutes, and when I came back, I was on a stretcher in the back of an ambulance. 
my purse was tucked against my hip, and so was that Rilke book. They, they probably thought it was mine. It was a long ride to the hospital, and the EMT was playing with his phone, so I opened the book, and the first thing I see is page 29, Archaic Torso of Apollo. Weird name for a poem, right? So I read it, and it was like fate had whacked me on the shoulder with a crowbar. Page 29. I was 29. Guess when my birthday is? The 29th? February 29. I'm a leap year baby. Doesn't that blow your mind? Yes, I said, although it didn't, not really. My mind rarely got blown as long as my pasta cooked for the right length of time and I had visual confirmation of a fire extinguisher. Don't get me wrong, I'm not superstitious, but there were too many 29s for it not to have meaning. I ran home and read the poem to Cement Heart, and you know what he said. He said it sounded gay. That was it. Can you believe it? Right then I was done with him. Done with Portland and the dentist and all those teeth. Page 29, you must change your life. That's the line. And so I did. For a while, I did some hiking in the Cascades, almost became one of those tree people. She pointed at the photographs on the wall, mountain ranges and streams and a small furry animal I didn't recognize. That's a pine marten, she said. They're like half fox, half weasel. It's extremely rare to see one. I looked out of my tent one morning, and there he was, poking this dead field mouse like he couldn't decide whether to eat it or give it mouth to mouth. I grabbed my camera and took the shot right before he bit off its head. Great stuff, isn't it? I was tempted to stay in the woods, but I knew I needed to be around people. So I moved across the country, and here I am, ready to fall in love with you if you're up for it. I didn't see the connection between changing your life and asking a complete stranger to fall in love, but I was willing to let it slide. I had my own story of pulling up stakes. I told people I had moved to Cool City for a promotion, but mostly I needed to get away from my mother. Annabelle uncapped a pen, picked up the clipboard, and started questioning me, searching for commonalities in our respective philosophies. Yoga, yes. Chinese food, sometimes. Any film with Adam Sandler? Absolutely not. Ten minutes later, she showed me her chart. Cats. Annabelle? Yes. Dash? Yes. God? Annabelle? Not sure. Dash? Yes. The color blue? Annabelle? Yes. Dash? Yes. Brown pants? Annabelle? Never. Dash? Willing to discard? Rilke? Annabelle? Yes. Dash? Willing to read more? Parties with 12 or more people? Annabelle? No. Dash? Optional. Foot massage? Annabelle? Mandatory. Dash? Okay. Frozen waffles? Annabelle? A must. Dash? Sure. Why not? Flossing? Annabelle? A must. Dash? Nagging required, but yes. Lying in bed, listening to rain on Sunday morning? Annabelle? Yes. Dash? Yes. Lonely? Annabelle? Yes. Dash? Yes. Willing to change your life. Annabelle? Yes. Dash? Never really thought about it before. Very promising, Dash, Annabelle said. A solid foundation. I think we should go for it. Fast love? Why the hell not, she said. It's the basis of the fast love movement. Dr. Ashokan says that if you really take the time to get to know someone, you'll find thousands of reasons not to love them. But look at the world we live in. Does anyone even pretend anymore that it doesn't totally suck? Any second a bomb could go off and bam, you're done. Uh, a deadly little virus could slip out of a test tube and 
bam, your, your skin is green and you're choking on your own vomit. And the climate is about to drop some really serious shit. And bam, I said, I get the point. The only thing that makes it worth a damn is love. So why waste your time? Pick someone and fall in love. It's the only way out of the suck hole. She put down the clipboard and moved closer to me on the couch. In the corner beside the bookshelf, I saw her backpack, a camping stove, and her tent from the Cascades stuffed in a vinyl bag as if she were ready to light out at any moment. Annabelle lit a candle. It had the rich scent of winter pine, and I imagined her deep in the woods driving tent stakes into the dirt, the twisting flame from her propane grill casting the only light as she set up camp beneath the giant hemlocks and white bark pines. So now what, I asked. Well, there's this, she said, and we kissed, a quick peck followed by a longer one, her tongue darting between my lips as she pressed her palm against the side of my face. I breathed in the scent of her strawberry shampoo and nuzzled the cool slope of her neck. I hadn't kissed a woman in 463 days, and I'd forgotten how you could lose yourself in that rush of desire how the annoying parts of your brain would pause when those instinctual reflexes kicked in, how the soft landing of a woman's body could, if only for a moment, make everything else in the world exactly as it should be. She bit my lip playfully, then slowly pulled away. You have 48 hours to commit, Annabelle said. After that, I'll move on to someone else. Where do I need to commit to? Fast love. We move in together by the end of the week and marriage by the end of the month. Some followers would make you decide before you leave here tonight, but I don't like to rush. 48 hours is fair. She walked over to the bookcase and came back with a photo, something she had printed off the internet, a white marble statue of a headless Apollo, the torso chiseled and glistening. I wasn't always quick, but I got the message. That night I couldn't sleep, so I turned on the weather channel. Hurricane Denise had hit the Carolinas, overturned boats, flooded streets, tree trunks ripped from the soaked earth. A reporter in a yellow slicker shouted toward the camera until the microphone blew from his hands. The satellite map showed a jagged line headed for Cool City. Denise would arrive within 36 hours. We were advised to stock up on essentials, milk, bread, bottled water, batteries. I made a note to pick up more frozen waffles and linguine. When I left for work, I found a diagram taped to my front door. It was a Venn diagram with Annabelle and Dash entwined in a circle with the inexplicable gray space we call love. I'd been in Cool City over a year, but still hadn't acclimated to its bustle. The people stampeding in their never-wavering steps, the noise, the scent of grilled kebabs and wet garbage smacking you at every corner, the ominous steam pouring up through the manhole covers like dissipated ghosts. Whenever I saw a stop sign, I needed to tap it three times before I could start walking again. In Kansas, this hadn't been a problem, but in Cool City, I had to fight my way to the signs and often wound up shoved from the curb before the third tap. In my office building lobby, the Weather Channel had replaced CNN. Denise had just hit Maryland and would arrive in Cool City by midnight. A hundred-year storm, the anchor cried, a tiny American flag wavering behind him in the lower left of the screen. My company was on the 18th floor, but I never took elevators, so I trudged up the steps the heavy fire door falling shut behind me with the long, echoing clang. Once inside my office, I called my brother, who was stationed in Kuwait after his second tour in Iraq. I used the prepaid international calling card I bought specifically for this purpose and then waited for him to ring me back on a military line. We weren't close, but Jerry was the person I reached out to whenever I had a problem. 
He had joined the Marines while I was still in fourth grade, leaving me the sole focus of Mom's growing neurosis. I preferred to think that she meant well, that it wasn't easy having a husband and then a son off in the military in harm's way, and so her efforts to protect me were a twisted kind of love. The few times I invited friends over, she'd spray them with Lysol before letting them through the front door. Word quickly spread, and my social status downgraded from quiet kid to weirdo by the time I hit middle school. Yet I still tried. Freshman year, I fell head over heels for Lisa Sullivan, a new girl in school unaware of my dubious reputation. Our first date, ice cream, and a movie ended before it began. Mom drove me to pick her up. She made Lisa sit in the front seat while I squirmed in the back, pulling at the seatbelt and counting every stop sign that we passed. Whenever we hit a red traffic light, Mom flipped open a book on venereal disease and showed Lisa the pictures, pointing out what could happen if she and I tried anything dirty. When we pulled into the Dairy Queen parking lot, Lisa jumped out of the car and phoned her parents, who threatened to have Mom arrested if I ever spoke to Lisa again. Whenever Dad called, I tried to explain things, but he didn't want to hear it. He never told us where he was. He'd imply that it was top secret, that he was with special forces on a mission deep in the Middle East, although later I found out he was just a supply officer on a NATO base in Slovenia with a secret family he preferred to ours. When I graduated and turned 18, he and Jerry encouraged me to sign up, but by then I'd already developed certain habits and compulsions. I knew the military wasn't for me. I tried for a fresh start at Ohio State, but while I occasionally found a haven with the campus outcasts, the pattern had been set. I had cordial relations with co-workers, but no actual friends, and since I moved to Cool City, my only real confidants were my therapist and Radka from the laundromat, who would sip from a flask and nod her head at everything I said, waiting for her chance to tell another story about Prague in 68. My office phone rang. Static popped over the line, but my brother's voice came through clear. I told him about Annabelle, went deep into the details. She sounds hot, Jerry said. It's not like that. She's not hot? No, she's pretty, but it's more than that. It's hard to explain. Did you sleep with her? Jerry thought everyone in Cool City had crazy sex all the time. No, we just kissed. She keeps talking about love. Brotherly advice, if you're not getting any, get out quick. You're no help. Hey, you called me. When did I offer to help? After he enlisted, he sent me a postcard from basic training with the message, Coolest place ever. I've got 25 new buddies just from being in the platoon. Jerry loved being part of something bigger. The military absorbs you, he once said. To me, that seemed horror movie awful. Jerry smiled when he said it, as if the absorption could swallow up those things you were better off not keeping. Over the years, I'd question him to see if we shared the same inclinations. But Jerry was always cagey about it, never saying much except... I follow orders. Be careful, I told him. Jerry worked in supply and rarely left the base. But Kuwait wasn't Kansas, and I worried. Let me know if you marry that chick, he said. But don't expect a gift or anything. It sounds like a scam. The next few weeks at work, actually the next few hours at work, were pretty much a waste. Most of my time spent Googling Rilke poems. I was the regional manager for a distributor of industrial cleaning products, a source of great pride to my mother. Every few months, I'd send her a complimentary carton of Wipeout, our biggest seller, a powdered cleanser favored by slaughterhouses in large city morgues. It was a desk job. I lived within spreadsheets and pivot tables, most of my work handled through email. Officially, I supervised a staff of 20, but they were all field people based out of their homes. 
I saw them at quarterly meetings. Otherwise, they were voices on the phone, names in my inbox. I interacted the most with my assistant, Carlos, who seemed both hostile and solicitous for reasons I couldn't grasp. Every morning, he would bring me coffee, even though it wasn't his job, and I didn't drink coffee. When I asked him to stop, he explained that the old regional manager had loved coffee and said nothing more. The coffee kept coming. He knew I had some quirks and tried to anticipate them. When I visited the restroom, he'd sneak into my office and arrange my pens in a straight line adjacent to my laptop and wipe my keyboard with an antibacterial towelette. Maybe someone in human resources had told him I had issues, but I didn't care about my pens, and bacteria were my mother's thing, not mine. As long as I went for falafel at 11.26 each morning and took the back staircase to and from my office, things went smoothly at work. But at least Carlos looked out for me. That morning, two packages of flashlight batteries waited on my desk. I found some Rilke poems online, but wasn't impressed. They seemed sentimental and pretentious. I preferred the original German, even though I didn't know the language. When I recited them aloud, the words sounded harsh and orderly, commands you could appreciate. When I looked up, Carlos was in the doorway, clutching a manila folder to his chest. I scrolled down and read the first line I saw in German. Ich mag ach messen, hersen, hang, uckerten, grabten, hilde, treten. He ran off without a word. I looked up the translation, made sure I hadn't read something that was a violation of the company's code of conduct. It was something about stepping out of your heart and walking beneath an enormous sky. That night, Annabelle banged on my door again, just as I was counting out the 27 strands of linguine. I took a deep breath, set aside the pasta, and lowered the heat under the pan before opening the door. There's a fast love meeting downtown on 19th Street. Want to join me, she asked. She wore jeans and a baggy white t-shirt with a smiling kangaroo hand-drawn across the front. That's Alex Flynn, she said, pointing at the kangaroo. I made it myself. Where do I sell the movie rights? Half the kids in America will be wearing this shirt. He's cute, I said. He's not cute. He's debonair. She leaned through the doorway and pecked my cheek. What do you say? These, these fast love meetings are great. Couples tell their stories. One of the counselors offers advice. And we reaffirm our pledge. It's like Scientology, only no Tom Cruise. Or we could go to the park and walk around. I, I know we're supposed to be freaking out about this storm, but who cares? I've been wet before. Uh, thank you for asking, but I'm about to make dinner. We'll grab something out. The meeting doesn't start till 7. Again, thank you, but uh, I've already started counting out the linguine. Uh, if you're in the mood for Italian, I, I know a place on Whitmore. How can I explain that I really had no choice but to eat the linguine? All 27 pieces cooked for exactly 9 minutes and 24 seconds. Even the most accommodating restaurant won't prepare their pasta to the precise second. The ramifications were potentially severe, the classic symptoms of a panic attack like a racing heart and heavy breathing, but also an inability to speak and an overwhelming sensation of doom. Once, before I moved to Cool City, a, a broken stove had triggered a downward spiral and I wound up hiding at the back of the closet, my whole body shaking, a pair of sweat socks jammed into my mouth so I wouldn't scream. I couldn't remember how that exact length of time, nine minutes and 24 seconds, became so goddamn important. I only knew it calmed me down and made it so that I could keep on living. Wait a minute, you count your linguine? Annabelle peeked through the door and saw the water boiling on the stove. You're either blowing me off, which is certainly your right, or you've got some kind of condition. I'm not blowing you off. Okay, she said, nodding her head. 
I'll have to add a new question to the list. She scanned the apartment, checking for pet rats or human skulls, or perhaps wondering if she could find a way out of this. Even fast love must have an escape clause for someone like me. Boiling water spilled over the pan and hissed against the stove. It was embarrassing to count the pasta again in front of her, but there was also no way to explain how good it felt when I dropped those 27 strands into the pan and set the timer. Is your problem just linguine? There are others, I said, starting to blush. Fire extinguishers, frozen waffles. Maybe a few more. What about me? Will your head explode or something if I eat 19 pieces of linguine instead of 27? No, I told her. You can do what you want. This is a troubling development, she said, but fast love is all about commitment, right? Can we go to the meeting after you finish your pasta? As long as we're back by 9.15. Waffle time? Yes. I prefer Pop-Tarts. Annabelle checked her watch, but I've still got 24 hours to make a break for it. After dinner, we walked to the meeting, which was held in the basement of a Unitarian church. Fortunately, Annabelle didn't seem bothered by my tapping the stop sign. It was her day off, and she spent the afternoon working on her graphic novel about the kangaroo. I'm starting really to understand him as a detective and a kangaroo, she said. His kangaroo-ness is integral to the story. Did you know that kangaroos are the only animals on Earth who are pentapeds? They use their tail as a fifth leg when they hop like this. She paused for a moment, waited for some people to pass, and then started hopping, bending her knees and jumping forward. Her arms pulled close to her chest as she bounced down the street. Lacking a tail, she dragged her right leg and pushed off with it before launching her two-legged hop. See? Totally in character. She stopped about twenty feet ahead. With a hop and a pivot, she turned and faced me, waving me forward with a pretty little grin as some scowling woman with a baby surged past, and a guy with a briefcase bumped shoulders and told me to get the fuck out of the way. Your turn, Annabelle said. She was testing me, waiting, hands on her hips, ready for my lame excuse. But I didn't need one. I started hopping. The whole pentaped business was beyond me, but I, I knew how to hop. Her eyes lit up as she started laughing, and I hopped right by her until I hit the intersection, where a stop sign waited for my one, two, three. You're the first guy who ever did that, she said, and tiptoed again. It's me for a peck on my cheek. Lucky 13. Three blocks later, we reached the church. Beside the door hung a hand-painted sign, the letters an uneven mix of black and blue. You can't hurry, love? Says who? The ABCs of Fast Love with Dr. Prima Ashokin. Free lecture, 7 p.m. Annabelle pointed toward the stairs, and I followed her into the basement where 23 people had gathered near a coffee urn. A fire extinguisher hung by the entrance. I had expected a bunch of hipster types like Annabelle, but most of the crowd appeared on the far end of middle age, with a few senior citizens scattered in the mix. I saw one old guy adjust his hearing aid while he nodded toward a woman propped against her crutch. Standing near the donuts was an Indian guy about my age, wiping his nose against his sleeve. A twenty-something girl with multiple piercings and a tattoo of a rattlesnake coiled on her left shoulder glared until the Indian guy walked away. Two hard-looking dudes, ex-con types, scanned the room as they puffed their Marlboros beneath the no-smoking sign. They spotted Annabelle and took extra long drags on their smokes. Come on, let's grab two seats up front, Annabelle said. We navigated the gauntlet of eyes and sat in front of the wood podium, which was decorated with little red hearts. Annabelle took my hand and placed it on her lap. It helped speed the bonding, she said. A gray-haired woman in dress pants and a blazer broke from the crowd and strode toward the podium. 
She was short, with rounded hips and a sharp profile. Hair pulled back in a bun, her eyes peering over wired-framed glasses as she scanned the church basement like a grade school teacher waiting for the bell. Following her cue, the other guests settled into their folding chairs. Someone dimmed the lights. That's Dr. Ashokin, Annabelle whispered. I waited for the music to kick in, expecting flutes and wind chimes and a Peruvian rain stick. But the room remained silent until the doctor raised her hand, smiled at the guests, and broke into a scream, a long, high-pitched horror movie shriek. I looked around, but everyone seemed calm, as if they were enjoying the scream. And when Dr. Ashokin finished, 24 people screamed too, including Annabelle, who tossed back her head and cried as if a tent spike had just smashed through her big toe. And why wouldn't we scream, Dr. Ashokin sighed when the noise finally abated. We're machines with only one fate, to decline, to decay, to self-destruct. She paused and closed her eyes. The only rational response is, a chant arose from the crowd. Love. Love is the answer. A study in Copenhagen proved that if you stare into the eyes of a stranger for more than nine minutes, you would fall in love with that person, Dr. Ashokin said. The amino acids in your brain modify neural pathways and trigger your endocrine system to establish a love bond. Nine minutes, that's all you need. There was more, but I didn't really listen. Annabelle squeezed my hand, and I liked it. I liked her skin against mine. I liked the sound of her voice each time she chanted with the crowd even if much of what she said was batshit loony. I imagined telling my mother about fast love. In a way, she and Dr. Ashokin had similar worldviews. Something bad was waiting at the door, but instead of grabbing a fire extinguisher or a can of Lysol like my mother, fast love told you to grab someone else and hang on. Maybe Ashokin had a point. I looked around the room. Even the ex-con guys and the rattlesnake girl were choking back tears. Back on the street, the wind had kicked in, and you could feel the clouds ready to attack. A steady drizzle had started, and we ducked against the cigar shop door, hoping it might pass. We listened to the rain ping against the awning. Annabelle checked her watch. Twenty hours to go, she said. Are you in? I like you, but that was strange. You think the whole thing is stupid, don't you? Most guys do. They think I'm going to sleep with them within 48 hours, and they're all into it. But once they figure out what I'm really talking about, it's bye-bye, baby. What are you really talking about? Wake up in an ambulance with a poem on your chest, and then you'll understand. Didn't you hear what Dr. Ashokin said? We can alter our brains. Say yes, and we can have waffles together at 9.30 every night. 9.15. I come across hundreds of guys every day. I didn't pick you randomly. Something about you drew me in, and I've, I've seen you checking out my legs on the stoop, so don't play it cool. I'm not interested in going out to dinner and hooking up and seeing if we can handle a, a weekend trip without killing each other. I don't have time for that. I'm ready for the deep end of the pool. I will change my life. The rain let up and we started walking, keeping close to the buildings. At the corner, I broke away to tap the stop sign three times, but after the first tap, Annabelle grabbed my arm and wrapped me in a bear hug from behind. She bit my neck and pressed her knee against my thigh. I need to touch the sign two more times. No, you don't. Actually, I do. What if we walk home like this, our bodies locked like puzzle pieces? It doesn't work that way. You need to breathe. I need to touch the sign. What if I don't breathe, she said, inhaling and holding her breath. She broke the hug and faced me, smiling as her cheeks flushed pink, her foot tapping out the seconds while her finger poked my chest. 
It was a clever mood, but it made me sad because she didn't understand. I watched her lips waver, ready to break. She clenched her jaw, not giving in, balling her hands into tight fists, the lines above her eyebrows creasing as her chest drew in, her skin turning to darker hues as her eyes narrowed into mean little dots. I reached over and touched the stop sign two more times. Her shoulders slumped as she finally exhaled, her breath rushing out like air from a popped balloon. I'm sorry. No worries, she said, but she wouldn't look at me. She just stared up at the sky, and then suddenly she started running, the rain picking up as she bolted down the sidewalk. I ran after her, but she was pretty fast, and at every intersection, a stop sign broke my stride. Hey, wait up, I called, but she didn't look back, and finally I stopped running, my breath wheezing as I resigned myself to one more stop sign, tapping it three times as the rain became a downpour. When I reached the building, Annabelle was nowhere in sight. I waited, thinking she might jump out for another bear hug, but she was already inside. I felt dizzy and grabbed onto the railing by the front stoop, the same railing Annabelle would lean against when she listened to music with her giant headphones. A sudden compulsion overwhelmed me, as if I had entered a room and she was the fire extinguisher. I took the steps two at a time, slipping on the wet cement and scraping my elbow as I ran through the door. There was still time left before I needed my waffles, so I headed for her apartment. Her voice sounded in the hallway as I climbed the stairs, and when I reached 2B, I saw her leaning against her apartment door, only she wasn't alone. A man stood next to her, some short guy with a windbreaker, a green fishing hat, and a long black umbrella tucked beneath his arm. Hey, I said. It was the extent of my vocabulary at that particular moment. I looked at the other guy and hated him instantly. You've got 19 hours to decide, Annabelle said, unless he... What's your name again? Josh, the fishing hat guy said. Unless Josh says yes first. He's got eight hours. Eight and a half, he corrected her. She rolled her eyes, then slid her key into the lock and opened the apartment door. Enjoy your waffles, she told me, and Josh followed her inside. That night, the storm hit. Hurricane Denise, Category 4. A meteorological ass kick to the heart of Cool City. Rain pounded the windows like squirrels dancing on tin. The wind surged down the block, tossing garbage cans and newspaper racks like confetti. A halal cart blew down the street, banging into cars and setting off alarms. Through the window, I saw a few intrepid souls commuting with the storm. A man and a woman dropped to their knees, arms drawn toward the sky, welcoming the rain. For a second, I thought it was Annabelle, but no, the woman had red hair. The man was stone bald. Then the street's lights went out, and I could see nothing. The apartment lights held on for another 20 minutes, and then it was dark. No television, no internet, the streets of Cool City like an underwater tunnel. I crawled into bed and pulled the sheets over my eyes. I couldn't sleep. I kept thinking about Annabelle. I started worrying that the electricity would never come back. The building shook beneath the wind gusts, and I heard a crash outside. I ran to the window, but could barely see through the rain. The utility pole lay fallen across the street, the black wires jutting with sparks. A little fist formed at the back of my head, pounded in rhythm with my pulse. I walked the length of the apartment for hours, wondered if Annabelle could hear my footsteps two floors down. I dropped to the floor and held my ear against the hardwood, hoping I might hear her voice. Never admit to doing this, I told myself. I went back to bed, coated with floor dust, soaked in sweat. At 6 a.m., Carlos called with news that the building was closed. Everything was closed. The rainfall measured in feet now, the wind unrelenting. 
I activated the emergency alerts, but I wanted to call you personally, he said. Did you bring those batteries home? Yes, thank you. Hang in there, boss, he said, as if he'd seen me in the night with my face against the floor. It might be a few days, but we'll get through this. I don't speak German, I said. There was a long pause before he said, oh, and hung up. The refrigerator was losing its cool, so I ate two yogurts and some half-melted ice cream. My routines, with a few workplace exceptions, occurred in the evening, so I still had some time. I sat in the kitchen and looked over two Rilke poems I'd printed at the office. Annabelle's torso poem about changing your life, and a poem titled Klage, both in German. I read Klage aloud, sounding out the syllables word by word. I still had cell phone service, so I started Googling the words, printed the German and the English translations side by side on 5 by 8 white index cards. Everything is far and long gone by. Each line received its own card. I printed carefully, keeping the letters within the tight lines, switching the pens between the two tongues. In a house, a clock has stopped. When did it start? How many times had I heard that question from counselors and teachers and soon-to-jump ship friends confident they could cure me? When did it start? When I explained that I couldn't remember that it was a gradual accumulation, they accused me of repressing some grand original trauma. Maybe, but I didn't see it that way. I'd had a whack childhood, but so had my brother, and he didn't care how long the pasta cooked. Some things just didn't translate, like how Google would flip Rilke's lines into robotic constructions, sending me to other sites for poetic, if less literal, translations of Klage, a word needing action, but turned by the poets into lament. I grabbed a flashlight and walked the dark stairs down to 2B. Outside her apartment, I was ready to knock until I heard Annabelle through the door talking about hiking in the Cascades. She mentioned that Pine Martin again, and then a second voice, Josh, joined in her chatter. My hand, curled in a fist, froze. I wanted to knock, but I couldn't. I wanted to eavesdrop, to hear every word and every inflection, but I couldn't do that either. I flipped the index cards until I found the right one. I left the card at the foot of her door and walked back upstairs. I fell asleep on the couch, and when I woke up, Denise was gone power was still out, but the rain had stopped and the wind had softened to a normal breeze. Strands of sunlight beamed through the window as the sky cleared. Up and down the block, there were fallen trees everywhere, their roots yanked out, mud trails slithering over the pavement. People crept along the sidewalk, crawling over massive trunks, gathering severed branches and piles of wet leaves, stroking the bark as if the trees were old friends lost in the war. I still felt sleepy as I checked my watch. It was almost 6 p.m. So I walked to the kitchen and pulled the linguine from the cupboard. I filled the saucepan with water and set it on the stove. Then I turned the switch on the burner, and nothing happened. With the power gone, the electric stove was useless, the toaster the same. I had some time before waffles at 9.15, but the linguine needed to start boiling soon, or the timing would be off. I was down to one bar, but my phone still worked. I called my brother, hoping his marine training might offer a solution. How the hell should I know? Get in a Humvee and drive back to the green zone, Jerry said. Cooking pasta in a blackout isn't part of basic training. They sent us there to conquer their asses, not cater a wedding. I'm in a crisis here. He laughed, then stopped when he heard my troubled breaths. I know a guy who used to march in place whenever he felt stressed. Did it work? Uh, for a while, but he, he lost his leg to an IED. Now he just drinks. You're not helping me, Jerry. 
just pretend we're in the basement again, he said. We always made it out, right? I hung up and paced the apartment. Perhaps if I soaked the pasta for nine minutes and 24 seconds. But I knew that wouldn't fly. I began to sweat, and my heart palpitated as I stalked the kitchen. Outside the apartment, I heard trucks and chainsaws beginning the cleanup. Black cables, coiled like snakes, lay in the middle of the street. It could be days before the electricity returned. I had faced something similar once before and didn't want to think about it. I made some space in the closet, grabbed a clean pair of socks for my mouth, just in case. I called the power company and the landlord, but both lines were busy. Even my therapist's line was dead. This wasn't supposed to happen in a place like Cool City. I felt the sweat dripping down my back as I switched the stove on and off, on and off, desperate for the burner to glow red. I took deep breaths, tried a few of the visualizations that Lydia had taught me. I imagined the linguine boiling in the pan while the seconds ticked off the clock, but it only made things worse. Around my neck, the skin itched and burned, as if a belt of fire were tightening beneath my chin. I started hyperventilating, but my lungs were concrete slabs. I couldn't breathe. I counted the seconds, still not breathing. And then there was a knock on the door. I heard my name, and then a second knock. It's Alex Flynn, kangaroo detective, Annabelle said. It was hard to move, but I forced myself over to the door. Hey. Her smile faded when she saw how I looked. I I thought you might be under the weather. Get it? In her arms, she carried a small camping grill and a canister of propane. This baby heats up pretty quick. I'm not sure how it handles frozen waffles, but it boils pasta like a dream. She handed me the grill, and in that moment, I think I understood the inexplicable gray space we call love. In the kitchen, I grabbed a towel and dried the sweat from my face while Annabelle set up the propane. Within minutes, the water was bubbling. I slid the linguine into the pan. My skin cooled. My pulse dropped to normal. What happened to Josh, I asked. He didn't want to walk home in the rain, so I let him stay, she said. But the eight hours came and went. Excuse me, eight and a half. I checked my watch. It had been 46 hours and seven minutes since Annabelle had offered her love. So what's this all about, she asked, showing me the index card that I'd left on her mat. The linguine curled into the steaming water until all 27 strands were finally submerged. It's German, I said. It means, I would like to step out of my heart and go walking beneath the enormous sky. I showed her the other index cards, and together, we stood in the kitchen, arranging the cards side by side, moving them around until we found the right sequence and started reciting them. Annabelle in English, while I worked through the German, our voices in harmony as we hit the last line of Rilke's Klage, ending on the word lament, which in certain translations also means action. Wow. This is supremely promising, Dash. The only poem Cement Heart ever showed me was a limerick about a barmaid that ended with a rhyme for Hun. She read the poem again, this time silently. Her ankles crossed, those amazing shins free beneath her skirt. I listened to the linguine boiling on her portable grill, and in my head counted the seconds until it would be ready. After six minutes and 42 seconds, Annabelle turned toward the window and pulled back the curtains, streaks of light rushing through her dark hair as she pressed her hands against the glass and looked out at the sky. Over her shoulder, I saw the first hint of a sunset peeking over the rooftops, the sky ready to turn, a thin band of color beneath the fading sky, an enormous radiant pink stretching over Cool City. 
How long before the pasta is done, she asked. I'm kind of hungry, too. Outside, someone's car alarm sounded, a loud swirling cry rising from up the street. I stirred the linguine and lowered the heat on the grill. Soon, I told her. And that is Cool City. Thank you for tuning in to this edition of Lit These Days, presented by the Mark Literary Review. I'll be back in two weeks with another episode.